Talk Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk, Happy Hour Radio. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Seattle. Hello, Puget Sound. And welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. It's almost Groundhog's Day. It is February. Hope you're having uh, had a great January and still perhaps on those New Year's resolutions. Uh, but it uh, the spring is on its way. Of course, we're going to get some snow, I'm sure, at one point, because we always do. Uh, and I had the pleasure of uh, last week heading down to San Francisco for a fantastic uh, event called the uh, Fancy Food Show. It's the winter uh, one of two shows. One is in San Francisco on the, on the West Coast, one on the East Coast. And this is my first time, 1,800 vendors talking about uh, all the brand new products from cheese to hot sauce to chips to jerky turkey to candy to salt seasoning anything you can think of in a grocery store was there uh, along with uh, many uh, very passionate people um, uh, small businesses mom and pop shops from around the world international sections uh, we had uh, Canada and Mexico and Thailand and Philippines and etc etc really fun and it's a perfect timing for me because my next guest here my first guest uh, is Actually, an old kind of Seattleite. He's down in San Franciscoite. His name is Jonathan Kaufman. He is a, um, a journalist, a, a former line cook turned journalist, because somehow he thinks that was more lucrative. <laughs> I don't think he's probably eating his words at some point because uh, you, you eat more in a restaurant. Uh, but he's a James Beard award winning staff writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, and he served uh, as a restaurant critic uh, for the Seattle Weekly. So he knows the town, and his name is Jonathan Kaufman. Hey, Jonathan, welcome to Happy Hour. Thanks for having me. Hey, super excited. Uh, I know we chatted, and you uh, you work just around the corner from that fancy food show uh, exhibit center, the Moscone Center, and uh, I had a great time, and you've obviously been, but I didn't see you there among the thousands and thousands of people who were there. Uh, but first, let's talk about your history. You were a line cook turned journalist. Tell me that story. Yeah, so uh, I cooked in all through college, uh, worked in restaurants, and then I moved out to San Francisco and and uh, cooked for professionally for a number of years, and then decided in my late twenties that you know I really uh, I didn't think I wanted to be a cook for the rest of my life, so I uh, <laughs> stumbled into food writing, a total fluke. Um, started writing for a, an alt weekly newspaper called the East Bay Express here in in Oakland, and. Um, that was that, yeah. But I, they took me up to Seattle from 2006 to 2010, where I was uh, the critic up at the Seattle Weekly. Okay, well, that was quite the turn of events to arrive in 2006 at the height of the real estate hoopla, and then to leave in 2010 with uh, seeing everything bottom out and restaurants suffer and everyone the luxury good category suffer as well. Uh, what were you writing about during that time? Well, one of the things I just really loved about Seattle was, uh, you know, it has such a broad range of restaurants, and and working for the for the Alt Weekly, you know, we could, we got to cover the high end stuff, but also all of the mom and pop shops. So I had a blast um, traveling up and down uh, Rainier Boulevard and MLK Boulevard in South Seattle. I loved the Seattle suburbs, um, as well as you know all of this, all of the, the sort of the activity, the the real passion that the chefs in the higher end restaurants and the center city we're, we're uh, exhibiting. And you probably saw the advent of, of course, uh, the metropolitan markets uh, proliferate here in the Northwest, and of course, the farmer's markets. Um, you know, we're well known for this bounty of uh, the cornucopia food we have just uh, west or east of the Cascades, and, and actually uh, west of the Olympics, we've got the 
Pacific Ocean, of course, but uh, the heartland of Washington is the Yakima Valley with all the great produce. Yeah. I was so awed by the farmers markets there because Seattle, I think, was one of the first cities to really embrace the idea of a neighborhood farmers market in every neighborhood, and so it was great living in Capitol Hill. I had um, I had the Capitol Hill market I could go to, but then the U District market, you know, um, Columbia City, it, it, it was fantastic. Well, what's happening in San Francisco? Has uh, I, I know that that's kind of a fast paced. Uh, uh, Location and with the Silicon Valley around the corner, and of course all the tourists coming. Do you have a food market? Is the food scene there outside of restaurants? Uh, do you get that natural food uh, productivity happening? Definitely. You know, San Francisco caught up a little more slowly to the idea of having neighborhood farmers markets. So we definitely have those. Um, you know, I think. Uh, San Francisco is going through a lot of the same things that Seattle is, and so uh, a lot of expansion, which means a lot of n- new supermarkets, and but also, you know, a lot of a lot of turnover as as gentrification um, puts a lot of pressure on restaurants and and uh, markets and, and other businesses. One of the things we've seen up here, and uh, I've really fallen in love with, as of many of my peers and most everybody, just Trader Joe's. They've come about with uh, small enough locations that can serve fresh produce and proteins, but also alternative. Uh, grains and uh, products that are perhaps a little more less uh, commercially uh, produced or corporately uh, profit-driven. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you can shop well at at Trader Joe's. And, and you know, they came about in in L.A. in the 1970s and 1980s. And I was talking to somebody uh, from from L.A. who said that she used to get a lot of her sort of whole grain staples and, and gourmet cheeses there back in the early days. Yeah, and uh, a dollar goes a long way there. I really love it. You can get a banana for 19 cents, uh, and that's fantastic. So when I was at this food show, um, it was the first time for me, it, I was blown away by the uh, the wide variety and range of products that are, are less popular or have were popular in the old days. The tabbouleh, the uh, soy, the uh, matcha, the uh, I don't I didn't see any carob there. But um, this is perfect timing because I saw so many great great things there. As I as I get older, I'm a little more intolerant to perhaps gluten, perhaps corn, things like that. Um, perhaps that's some of my Asian in me. Uh, but you wrote a book recently. It's called Hippie Food. <laughs> Hippie Food. How back to the how back to the landers, long hairs, and revolutionaries change the way we eat. Um, so let's talk about. About this book, what got you on this this path to write a book called Hippie Food? Well, I think the real inspiration was actually the Sunlight Cafe in, in Seattle, which is Seattle's oldest uh, surviving vegetarian restaurant. It just passed on to the, the next generation, but it's had the same owners basically since the 1970s. And uh, back when I was reviewing restaurants, I decided, oh, I'm going to go check out the Sunlight Cafe and. and and sat down for a meal and had this like huge wave of nostalgia over the steamed vegetables with tahini lemon sauce and the you know the veggie burgers and uh, all of this food that I remembered growing up with, but I realized I just didn't see it around that uh, that that many places anymore. And so it got me thinking, you know, well, why did I grow up eating this food in a small town in Indiana in the 1970s? Why were my parents? members of a co-op how did they figure how did they like figure out that they wanted to eat brown rice and and you know and sprouts and yogurt and granola and and then how did those foods spread across the country so quickly 
Well, let's make a note. You said that your family was a member of a co-op. <laughs> I just want to make sure it wasn't yeah. a cult. <laughs> no, uh, no, not a cult. <laughs> although, <laughs> a food co-op. <laughs> there's, there's probably a little overlap with because people have the same uh, philosophy, uh, perhaps. Um, and in the introduction of your book, Hippie Food, uh, I did enjoy the passages about the, the Sunlight Cafe and how you uh, you were just enjoying that nostalgic take. Uh, and to, uh, you, you grew up as a Mennonite, right? And your parents were a little more liberal, so uh, tell me about the Mennonites first. I mean, is that like Amish? Is that um, is that Jewish? Is that uh, German? Or is that Quaker? I don't know. Tell me. Sure, they're um, they're mostly German Americans. Uh, they the Mennonites and the Amish immigrated together uh, to to Pennsylvania and then the Midwest uh, back in starting in the 1700s. They were uh, sort of the Puritans of Germany and Switzerland. So they came over for religious freedom and, and settled into small rural communities. Um, but but my parents' generation was the first generation to really leave, you know, farmsteads and and get college educations. And so I, I grew up in a in a church uh, that was where a lot of the people in the congregation were, you know, nonprofit workers, people who were really committed to social justice um, and you know uh, and 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 activism. Uh, but weren't weren't anything like hippies, <laughs> except for the hair. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> maybe the hair, there's a little hair going on. Yeah, definitely some sideburns. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm looking at your book, the table of contents. Uh, so, uh, chapter one, fruits, seeds, and the health quote nuts uh, in Southern California. Chapter two, brown rice and the macrobiotic pioneers. Uh, then you got brown bread and the pursuit of wholesomeness. Uh, of course. Uh, chapter four is all about tofu, the political dish, and then uh, you go into organic farming, vegetarian, and the co-ops and social revolutionaries. Uh, let's talk about pro macrobiotic because uh, we, we hear that term bandied about. Um, tell me what that means. You know, and it, I have to say, before I started researching the books, I, I really had no idea that what macrobiotics was, other than it was, you know, this diet that was supposedly, it could help cure or prevent cancer, and it involved something about yin and yang. And what I found was that uh, it was invented and brought to America by a Japanese man named George Asawa, who kind of combined the nutritional understanding of, of you know, the early 1920s with um, his own take on yin and yang and how you wanted to balance yin and yang foods. But his own take on yin and yang foods was very different from traditional Chinese ideas. So he, he, he said that you, you know, to, to, to balance these foods in your body, you could, you could cure any number of diseases. But he would also say, you know, American, the, the problem with the Western diet is that you know, we eat too much sugar, too much meat, too much alcohol, too much bread, and that's leading to, you know, obesity and heart disease and diabetes. So he was really forward-thinking in some ways, but then he also believed that, you know, uh, we should, that, that if you ate a brown rice diet, so nothing but brown rice and other cooked grains for 10 days, you could kind of change the cells in your body and eliminate all disease. So wow. some of his early followers actually developed scurvy, and a couple people died because they, they died in malnutrition. Oh, no. Oops. They needed some lemon tahini on that for some vitamin C. Exactly. Oh, well, interesting. And what year was that? What decade was uh, the Japanese fellow uh, spouting? He first made it to the States in 1960. Okay, so that was way long ago. Um, you know, one of the dishes I grew up with, and I grew up with my Chinese grandparents, uh, emigrated to the United States, and uh, they have passed on. Um, but I lived with them and, and learned about uh, cooking with ginger and cooking with uh, curry and also cooking with daofu and tofu. And I see you have a whole chapter mm -hmm. on that. Um, 
what I noticed about your book, though, is it's not a cookbook. It's really just a story of uh, a story of the story. Yeah, and, and you know, because I'm a journalist by training, um, and because this was such a grassroots movement, it, you know, it, it, there was not you know one person or ten people or even twenty people that I could follow to tell the story. It was really happening all over the country, all at the same time. I just wanted to collect the stories of the people who who made this movement happen or who participated in it. And and I knew that they were going to be good because it was such a colorful time. And so um, I tried to weave those stories together with, you know, some of the stories about the books or the the other um, political events that that occurred at the time and and sort of show how these ideas and these foods traveled across the country and and made their way into the mainstream. Well, it's a super cool book. Uh, I'm excited to hear the story because obviously it does touch on Seattle, and uh, we we are pioneers in this in some way. The Northwest are very pioneering in perhaps coffee and beer and food products and uh, farming practices, whether it's hydroponic or uh, anything else. Now, uh, people want to find this book. Uh, You have it at the local bookstores here, the Elliott Bay Books, I'm sure. Uh, But do you have a website that Mm -hmm. people can go to to find more information about you? I do. It's www.jonathankaufman, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N-K-A-U-F-F-M-A-N.com. Jonathankaufman.com. And uh, you have several books I noticed on the website. What are some of the titles? Uh, I'm not so much books as much as uh, probably some articles that oh, I've written. Oh, that's so what I, it was. I do have a lot of links to other articles I've written. Yeah. Um, this is my, actually my first book. So. Okay. So I looked at it, and I was just uh, streaming through it. You had these nice little graphics there that made me think you had some other books. Um, but you are coming to back to Seattle to visit. Tell me about that. I am. I'm really excited that I'm going to be coming to Town Hall on February 27th to give a talk. It's going to be at the Westside School. Um, and would love to have you know people who remember the cuisine or want to learn more about it come and share, share, share their stories. And um, yeah. I'm trying to remember that. just brings me back to the north. All right. So February 27th, that's towards the end of the month. And uh, tickets, are, how do we find tickets? Is that on your website as well? Uh, I will post, I have a post uh, link, uh, there's a link on my website, but I think if you go on Tom, Town Hall Town Hall's website, they have... Uh, Townhall.org, okay. Fantastic. Well, Jonathan Coffin, um, it's a real treat to uh, to read a little bit about our community here and to know that you were a part of it. Um, thanks so much for sharing the story about hippie food and how Back to the Landers, Long Hairs, and Revolutionaries changed the way we eat. Thanks for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thanks for having me on the show. Right on. Hey, that's Jonathan Coffin. And uh, coming up on the show, I'm going to tell you more about some of the foods I uh, encountered down at the uh, the big festival, the fancy food show. And plus, we'll have some great wine tasting coming up right here on Happy Hour Radio. He's back, and he's in charge. Kirby Wilbur, live and local, weekdays 9 to noon. Talk Radio 570, KVI. KVI, want to know weekends. Time for another round of Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, folks. Hey, I'm your pharaoh of food today, and uh, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. It's uh, around two. I was in San Francisco last week at the Fancy Food Show. Um, it's, uh, it happens twice a year. It's one's on the East Coast, one's in San Francisco, and it'll be returning next January. I suggest if you're if you're into it and you have some time, uh, I cashed in some miles. I flew down on Alaska. I, I grabbed on BART. Uh, I was down there at 9 a.m., and I was back home at 10 p.m. It was a long day, but what a fun way to munch, crunch, sip, 
sample, swallow, and sometimes spit your way through um, 1,800 food vendors that are producing uh, really cutting edge and um, small artisanal products. But you also see some of the big companies there that are changing the way they they feed the world, if you will. Uh, and I want to share, I brought some samples home, and um, there were way too many samples, and I didn't want to seem like one of those uh, you know sample uh, groupies that just wants to you know, fill my bags with stuff. Plus, I wasn't sure if I could get it all back uh, through TV. And, of course, that left out all the liquids. Uh, and I should talk about liquids because there were all sorts of liquids. We're talking about um, – I met Dave with Dave's Insanity Sauce. That was really fun. Uh, he's a cool cat. He owned a restaurant. Uh, he used to own uh, – he made a Mexican restaurant kind of uh, out in College Park, Maryland. And he would serve uh, food, be open late night so all the university kids after their party would come and, and, and eat and eat and eat. And they, was kind of, they were getting too rowdy, so he decided to put out some really, really hot sauce uh, to try to scare them off, you know, like to burn their mouths and they won't come back. But it turned out that they loved it, so they started asking for more of this hot sauce. And he goes, and they, they said that the sauce was crazy and it was wild and, and it was absolutely insane. So that's how Dave came up with Dave's Insanity Sauce. And he had a bunch of cool products down there. Of course, his hot sauces. Uh, then he was making pasta sauces. And he had some something else. I think it was like a oatmeal. Oatmeal was a big... I want to say not a huge hit down there, but there were a lot of ingredients with oats and a lot of sort of cup of soup moments. And uh, we had yogurts and cheeses and so dairy and then non-dairy stuff. Um, But some of the ingredients, some of the products that I really found were fascinating, um, several. Uh, First of all, we should talk about some of the categories. We had desserts, we had uh, teas and beverages and coffees and coconut waters and pickle juice. We had uh, some non-alcoholic beers energy drinks. Um, Of course, we had the whole host of breads and chips and crackers and all these alternative wheat products. Um, And some of those things uh, were fantastic. Of course, we had barbecue sauces and pasta sauces. Uh, Did I say candies? Uh, We had salts and seasonings. We had nutritional bars and protein. There was seaweed. There were nuts. There was honey. uh, There was soy. It was just phenomenal. Um, Some of the products I brought back uh, were the stuff that I tasted and I really liked because I wanted to share with you. So at the Fancy Food Show, uh, and you can check it out, it's uh, specialtyfoodshow.com. Come, I believe. Um, but one of the, the products I brought was vegan jerky. And, uh, you know, the vegan jerky, it's like, okay, why try it unless you can get it right? And this company really knocked it out of the park. Um, tasty meatless alternative, cracked black pepper flavor. It's by a company called Unisoy. And I told them, first of all, I was, Charlton Heston should be your spokesperson for Soylent Green because that's the freakiest name. Unisoy sounds like a giant corporation. <laughs> is digesting people and making jerky. Uh, so they got to work on the name because it is definitely not one of those friendly, uh, you know, um, soft as earth vegan jerky kind of thing. But it is a phenomenal package uh, of product. It, it's really, really delicious. Uh, I shared it with uh, my uh, engineer, Kevin, and he, he knew right away it wasn't real jerky, but is he was like really impressed. Uh, and he wears a uh, one of those flannel shirts, so I know he knows what he's talking about. Um, next up was uh, this Vegan Rob's. Vegan Rob's turmeric chips, super grain, mini waves. And they use algae protein and crispy pumpkin. I think, I don't know if that's a flavor or not, but one of the challenges I have with, with chip alternatives, whether it's potato chips or corn chips or um, you know anything with wheat in it, like crackers, is that they just don't get the texture right or they just got a funky taste. But these Rob, Vegan Rob's uh, plant-based uh, turmeric chips, and they have a whole host of different uh, flavors and ingredients, but here are the ingredients on this one. Uh, the base is sprouted brown rice flour. 
and you have ri- white rice flour, flax seeds, chia seeds, quinoa, and then uh, some tropical seasoning, sea salt, pumpkin powder, cane juice, etc. But that that's that's innovative thinking, and the the texture was fantastic. Um, it didn't make my stomach upset because sometimes you get those funny things and like God, it's just not working for me. But the vegan Rob's turmeric chips, um, outstanding. I think they'll be a huge hit. Uh, order yours today. Operator standing by. Uh, I got some cool salts here. San Francisco Salt Company. Uh, and if you haven't been into the salt scene, it's it's really fun. So they actually started flavoring salt. So I have a lemon rosemary salt. I have the original Himalayan pink salt. And I have a hickory smoked sea salt. And these are very flavorful. Just a, a little dash will do you. You don't have to put too much on them, uh, on any ingredient, unless you're really into salt. Um, it makes me think, also, they had a bunch of popcorn seasoning down there. Uh, it's really fun. Uh, it's kind of like the Japanese market where you, you see all those little jars of stuff that you can shake on your rice. And uh, it's all coming around. So that hippie food idea, we're getting back to basics. We're using our oceans sustainably, harvesting sea, uh, seaweed and plant-based products. Um, some of the uh, the Asian specialties, uh, hot candied crunchy roasted peanuts these are really fun these are kind of addictive they're they're just hot enough to make you go hot um, but they're sweet and crunchy and savory uh, and that's by some funny name called fong key p-h-o-n-g-k-e-e there are a host of bars uh, these chocolate bars are now containing antioxidant materials whether it's blueberries or cocoa nibs or flaxseed grains um, so that's going to be uh, on the shelves these days and uh, it was really fun to see some of our local partners down there. Who was down there? Chucker Cherries, um, uh, Partners Crackers. Uh, pl- let's see, who else? Uh, we had some of the Peterson Cheese Company and Almond Roca was down there. Um, but I was really surprised to see how many folks from the Northwest, because we are a hotbed of innovation. Uh, single serve raw fil- unfiltered honey packs in a little uh, like those uh, racers, those marathon runners or bike guys. They they bite that top and then squeeze it in the mouth. They've got these packets here. And uh, as far as candy goes, there was hosts of, of new kind of jelly bellies or uh, gummy bears. And um, here, let's see what you can guess what these are, if I can get this little thing open. Let's see if you know, because I think it's going to be a big hit. I had to use my teeth there. Sorry, Mom. Uh, these packages. Now, all right, see if it makes sense. Yeah. Can you tell what that is? It's Pop Rocks. These are called Volcano Popping Candy. And this is green apple flavor. And it's all over my hand. It's really good, though. And kind of fun. I mean, Pop Rocks. They need Pop Rocks for adults. <laughs> I don't know what that's going to entail. Mm. The problem traveling one with carry-ons or whatever is that all this stuff gets crunched up. Anyway, um, that was a really fun time. I suggest you have a chance to, if you have a chance, head down to San Francisco for the day. It's next January. There was a company out of Oregon that produced these really cool notebooks. Um, And they had, seriously, 40 or 50 different kinds of notebooks, um, ranging from taking notes. It's called 33 of something. So I brought three little examples back. Uh, the first book, little booklet, and it's just like a little uh, three by five po- um, postcard note. But each page has the name, uh, the producer, the price, the origin, um, notes, and a little chart. So each book is built that way. 
the first book is called 33 Bars of Chocolate. So if you are into like studying and keeping notes and, and you want to expand your vocabulary, you can take these books. Uh, they're just little cardboard paper books, but they're very cute. Um, and here's the flavor wheel for chocolate. Berry fruit, citrus fruit, stone fruit, floral, spicy, herbal, vegetal, earthy, caramel, toasty, roasty, coffee, nutty, sweet, dairy, creamy, and then linger. And now how appropriate that gal just passed. <laughs> Cranberries. Um, which I never did like that song. I thought it was weird. Uh, but uh, anyway, rest her soul. Uh, there's also a book called 33 Glasses of Whiskey, 33 Mugs of Cider, 33 White Wines, 33 Red Wines, 33 Kinds of Baked Potatoes. I don't know. I didn't get the whole list, but we'll have them on the show sometime, and it's really, really fun. Uh, and finally, i got to tell you, the, the dish that did it for me, the one thing that I wanted to take more of and be a little a little hoarder, uh, but I, I wasn't because my waistline won't help me do that, um, individual packets of single-serve baklava. Now, I, I love the crispy, the crunchy, the nutty, pistachio and honey. Um, that is really nature's uh, nature's best, best uh, combination of ingredients. But single-serving, bite-sized, more than two bite-sized, uh, two, wait, two bites, size for two bites. But it's baklava, really fun. The company's name is uh, Zolotomo Sweets. And they were founded in 1860, so it's the real deal because there can be a lot of baklava out there, but uh, it's got to be good. It's got to have honey, and it's got to have walnuts or pistachios, and it's got to have a little crunch. And, of course, it uh, can't be overly sweet. It's got to be balanced. Anyway, that was the San Francisco show. Really fun. Um, lastly, I, I just had an invitation to the Red Hook Brew Lab. It's up on Pioneer Square. Uh, not Pioneer Square. Pike Place. It's not Pike Place either. It's Pine Street. It's the old Mercedes-Benz dealership. And Taylor Shellfish was up there. Um, but you got to check this out. they got some fantastic brews. And I'll tell you more about it again. But uh, Taylor Shellfish was serving gooey duck and clams and oysters. I learned how to shuck an oyster finally. I know. I, I It's been a long time. I never knew how to do that. But I did know how to clean a crab and catch a fish and dig for clams. Now I am perfectly well-rounded. I am whole. And uh, coming up next, I got a longtime friend of mine. He is Keith Johnson. He is the founder of Decopa Brands, which is uh, just across the way. He features uh, Spanish wines and Chilean wines and more. We'll have Keith Peterson coming up next right here on Happy Hour Radio. Unapologetically American, period. Kirby Wilbur, weekdays, 10 to noon. Talk Radio 570, KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio. Now back to Seattle, Somalia, Christopher Chan. All right, that's me, your unapologetic Somalia. Right here on Saturday night on the air, and uh, I'm so happy to have my old friend Keith Peterson, who is with Tacopa Brands. He's uh, actually... Almost in Canada. He's up there in that Blaine area. Birch Bay. He's uh, live in studio today, and he's got some beautiful bubbles. I'm so excited. Uh, Keith Peters, and hey, welcome back to Happy Hour. Well, thanks, Chris, and uh, thanks for being a, a Cava Bonaval fan. You know? I am a Cava. Yeah. Uh, yes, take yeah. me to your Cava. You uh, absolutely are. And so we're talking about bubbles, everybody, and it, uh, this is February. I know Valentine's Day is right around the corner, um, but it's, bubbles aren't always just for uh, that special occasion, although you can make any occasion special by opening bubbles. 
Ah, right on cue. Look at that. <laughs> and not at all wet. <laughs> Very good. Um, you know, it's interesting, as the, as the Savant Sommelier, we're not supposed to make that sound. But I say, God, if you're going to drop three fifty on a bottle of Dom Perignon at some fancy place, you should shoot that cork across the room. You know, Chris, the one story I heard about the proper opening of a sparkling bottle is that it shouldn't make that pop. I did it for the effect. But, sure. Um, that the sound of a of a uh, wine cork coming out of a champagne bottle, out of a cava bottle, should sound like a virgin on her wedding night. <laughs> and I, I don't know. I've never been. To the I've altar. carried that forward ever since I first heard it. I want to say it was the Freshenet people that told me that about thirty-five years ago. So. Uh, they're getting a little too Freshenet, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> okay, well that's got us in the mood. Um, let's talk about Cava. Obviously, there's a billion bubbles in the world it seems these days, and Prosecco is rocking it out. Uh, but there is a long tradition of fantastic wine production in Spain, and uh, this is called Cava. Tell me about Cava, T. So. You know, cava is produced in the traditional method, method champenoise. That word champenoise can't be touched by anybody outside of Champagne, France. Um, but it is the very time-consuming, labor-intensive way of creating the secondary fermentation in the bottle. Everything is done in the bottle. Uh, this is once, not a soda stream. Exactly right. This is not <laughs> what they call Charmat bulk production, soda stream, any of those. Uh, this is all done in the same style as the true champagnes from France. The Spaniards are just able to do it a little bit more cost effective. Uh, they use they use yeah, less expensive shape. grapes for yes. sure. Um, but Cava has some very strict rules about what grapes you can use, what the production methods are, what the yields are. And most importantly, that it come from an actually classified DO by essentially a government organization, the sure. Consulor de Cava. Excellent. Now, when we think about Cava, um, we're, we're talking about a, uh, a, f a still wine that's been added, uh, the, some sweetness has been added again for the, for the yeast to eat. So that's right. what we're talking about, secondary fermentation. First fermentation creates alcohol, eats the original grape sugar. Uh, secondary fermentation happens in the bottle. Now, it's interesting that f whoever figured this out was uh, its invention, right? It's discovery because people thought it was a flaw back in the day. Right. Um, this is, is more in the Champagne area because mm -hmm. it was cooler, and we're not talking about Lemieux down in the south of right. uh, France. Um, but uh, having those bubbles and having that little yeast in there, you know, that's not sexy. Although these days, everything's all, it's all natural, right? It's, it's, it's hairy armpits. True, yeah. <laughs> Stuff yeah. like that. Fermented foods. Fermented foods, yeah. yeah. Um, but when we say the classical production, so really, by recognizing that this, this classic production method, it actually adds more flavor and complexity to the wine itself. That's what's really happening here. Definitely, because as you mentioned, you've got your primary fermentation, which creates just really a nice white wine in the case of the Brut and the Brut Nature that we'll taste today. Um, it, it, the yellows. Uh, it's a nice white wine. What is added then is the liqueur de tirage, which is, you know, this mixture of grape juice, sugar, similar grape juice to what the wine itself already is, sugar, and yeast. Nine months is required in cava for that to ferment, secondary ferment, on its leaves, on that yeast. Um, Not when, that it takes that long for the yeast to make, to eat all the sugar. Excellent point. 
It's just that we want this, by having it nine months, it's like basically dry aging your steak. Correct. Right? And what you end up with in cava or in any sparkling wine, if you allowed it to stay on the leaves for that long, is a little bit more of that baked goods, you know, yummy, yeasty sort of quality. It, it adds that toasty. High crust uh, and brioche and croissant. Bingo. Oh, biscuits. Bingo. Le and biscuits. And these flavors are really desirable in delicate sparkling wines. I mean, they just add that much more complexity to it. It's true, because when we think of white wines, um, a lot of the color, obviously, and some of the flavor comes from skin and or oak, right? Mm-hmm. We think of Pinot Grigio, it's it's really kind of an innocuous wine. It's like pleasant. It's a little bit of ripe pear, right? Um, right. And some lemon. Right. Other than that, it's not much going on. But here in Champagne, they've been able to uh, use several grapes. And in, in Spain as well, in Cava, we've got three basic grapes, but two international grapes. Is that right? Correct. So the white wine grapes that you'll see almost always used in in primary cavas. Now, 95% of all cava is produced in the Penedes region, up in Catalonia, in the northeast of Spain. There are seven other DOs that have been granted the ability to produce cava. The one that I bring in, the Bonaval, is actually from one that's 620 miles away from Penelope. Really? Yeah, okay. in the Extremadura region, far, far to the western part of the state, almost on the Portu- country, almost on the Portuguese border. Interesting. It's about 40 miles from the Portuguese border. Yeah, it's a little town called Almendralejo. And in 1983, they were granted the Cava Dio. And this was the first commercial production Cava company, Bonaval. And uh, they're still doing it today. So it's an interesting little conundrum about kava in that it's a wonderful thing with a lot of requirements in order to call it kava and let it go out as such. But it can come from almost any place in the country as long as it's been granted that okay. The DO, meaning the denomination origin, exactly right? So right. it has an, a, a, an origin of place, basically. Right. And that's demarcated with the rules and the, and the, the vine training right. and the aspect and the yields and the time and the lease. Well, let's pour some of that beautiful noise-making uh, stuff you've got there. So we'll there. start with the Brut Natur. And actually, I didn't finish uh, the question that you asked me, which was those three... The three grapes. Grape varietals, which <laughs> primarily in, in golden cavas of any type, will be uh, Macabeo, which is also known as Viura. 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 Uh, was originally known or best known before cava in the U.S. as the white wine that wasn't that impressive from Rioja. It was all made with Viura. Uh, then there is Pariata and Chorello. Chorello with an X. Some people say, right? And and this one has no Chorello. There's really no Chorello that's grown in that region. Um, This one is 90% Macabeo and 10% Pariata. Well, salute to you. Hey, Happy New Year, Uh, right? Salute. Well, I can't say it now. It's February. (laughs) So this is the Brut Natur. Where it differs from... Other cavas, and this is the most commonly consumed cava by the Spaniards in Spain, the Brut Natur class. No sugar as in, right? Zero. Talking the, about the dosage, which is the liquor de expedition. Exactly. So the, so the liqueur de tirage is the one that gets the secondary fermentation started. When that is complete, it's frozen in the neck of the bottle, dropped out as a plug, that little plug of yeast and extra sugar and assorted sediments that come from that secondary fermentation still in the bottle it's frozen at a minus 20 degree type temperature dropped out of the bottle and then the bottle is just topped off with the liqueur d'expedition which is a little more wine and a little more sugar right depending on how much 
grams of sugar in that dosage there is, you get your different dryness classes of kava. The terms brut nature, brut zero, uh, brut, brut. Um, extra brut. Some still use extra brut, exactly. Right. Uh, then uh, extra dry. Extra dry or mm-hmm. sec and demi-sec. Semi-sec go. Right? Semi-sec yeah, yeah, exactly. Sure. And those are made all from those three grape varietals. Chardonnay is allowed, as well as some Alvesia is mm. also allowed. No Pinot Noir? Uh, Pinot Noir is allowed, but technically they're only supposed, because it's a red wine grape, right. they're only supposed to use it if they do it in rosé cabas. Okay. And those grapes allowed are Monastrel, Garnacha, Cabernet Sauvignon, and Pinot Noir. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware that they allowed the extra, and that's quite a variance of grapes, talking about uh, yeah. Monastrel Morved. Truly. Um, you said uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. Garnacha. Grenache. Yeah, Garnacha and... Uh, and uh, and Pinot. Oh, and you know there's another one, Tripot. Oh, Tripot? Yeah. Oh, yeah. too funny. They're allowed We've to use Tripot in the rosé. So I, I think that probably Keep going. what happened was that, you know, the guys wanted to get involved in doing some rosés, and they had to be a little oh. more expansive in their thinking sure. about what they'd allow in those in that wine. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Just to hit a smidge here, a smidge right. there. As long as they're doing the And really, the quality comes down from the, the aging in the leaves and the actual classic production. Of course, uh, it's about... Hold that one, because we're going to take a break. And we come back from the break, I'm speaking with... Well, I'm tasting with the man himself. Uh, Decopa Brands, it's... Uh, what's your website? It's www.decopa.com. D-A-Q-O-P-A. Oh, okay. Oh, isn't this pretty music? Wow, folks. Hey, stick around. I'm going to be fluttering on my butterfly wings, and I'll be back right here on Happy Hour Radio. They do for politics what Edison did with the light bulb. Kirby and Carlson, weekdays, 8 to 10 a.m. Talk Radio 570 KVI. KVI Want to Know Weekends continue. Now back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Well, it's Christopher Chan and Keith Peterson of Tacopa Brands. We're talking about uh, the world-famous sparkling wine from Spain called Cava. And this cava is actually, uh, most of it's known from the region around Barcelona in the Penedes region. But this comes from all the way on the opposite end of that country, close to Portugal. Uh, this is from the Extremadura region. And this is a, a cava that's just 620 miles away from the home base for most of those places. You got another wine for us. Ha-ha! <laughs> yes, let them have cake. Let them eat brutes. Yeah, let them eat brutes. Um, which is interesting because when you think of Champagne, Champagne is one demarcated region. It, it's basically, you know, 30 miles wide, 30 miles long, um, and it's just five different areas, subzones, or perhaps six if you want to call. Um, but here you have just different regions within the entire country. Now, that's unique because... People talk about climate being a very specific part of the terroir, like in Burgundy and Bordeaux, etc. But here we have, um, obviously, a 600-mile difference, or that's like 1,000 kilometers. Yes, exactly right. It's a, it's about 1,000 kilometers between Almendralejo and Barcelona. Um, one of the things that you'll get in there is maybe just a variation in what grapes do better where. So, for instance, the fact that there is no Shirello in this wine, that there is no Shirello really grown in the Extremadura region, is usually because Shirello does much better on hillier, higher elevation, at hillier, higher elevation vineyards. There really aren't such things in Extremadura, which is kind of a flat, desert-like, eastern Washington-looking area. 
you know, between right at the borderline of Portugal there. And uh, you're heading off there sometime, I understand, as well, yes. to go travel the world. So uh, we were talking about sugar levels. Now, brut nature means basically no sugar has been added. So all mm-hmm. you have is natural acidity and the autolysis autolytic flavors from the dead yeast cells sitting in that bottle for nine months. Correct. Here when we have a brute, uh, a brute designation, you have now actually have in the liquor de expedition some added sugar to help uh, make that acidic, to balance the acidity in the wine and some of the fruit. Correct. And, and most of what we drink in the U.S., 90 to 95% of the sparkling wines that we drink in the U.S. are brutes. Uh, they are dry. They're absolutely dry. At perhaps something in the 10 to 12 grams of sugar range for that dosage, they're still very dry wines. There's not really supposed to be too much perceptible sweetness in any of this. No. Um, though the Spaniards think that we have a sweet tooth for the amount of brut that we drink because they traditionally <laughs> stay with brut nature. They like it in its in its most basic, in its driest, crispest, highest acidic form. Right. One thing about that, too, is that it is slightly lower calories without making any calorie claims on labels. It is it is lower calories, uh, and it's a little better for, you know, hangover ability the next day. And, right. You know, the Spaniards are out at tapas bars starting at maybe 4 in the afternoon if work was good that day, and they're there till 2 in the morning. And so it's a long evening of eating and hanging with friends and drinking something of lower sugar is not a bad idea. Not a bad idea. Yeah. And also the food they have. We're thinking about anchovies and olives and mm-hmm. tomatoes um, and... And, and just some of the, the mixed vegetables. I'm trying to think of all the tapas in my mind. I can see them. It's kind of like well, a dim sum. Eggs something. and nuts and hamon. Which like don't crazy. necessarily go well with sweetness. Hamon right. could because it's salty. But right. um, a lot of times you have the, the acidity. You have the pickleness. You've got the, the yes. olives and the anchovies and the tomato. Those yes. are all acidic uh, foods. And so a brut nature would go well. These are very reasonable priced. They are. Um, and kava in general is a great... A lot of work goes into it for a little bit of uh, investment on uh, most people's parts, but uh, where do these run, and where can people find these wines? The, you know, these are $10 a bottle, and, and that's kind of an average price for a decent cava, almost anywhere internationally, if you think about it. Locally here, we're in a number of the QFCs. We're in great restaurants in downtown Seattle all over the place because bartenders really like these cavas. They're clean. They make great mimosas, great cocktails. So... Just ask for Bonaval. Bonaval. It's, it's been around for about four years now, and yeah. people are getting to know it pretty well. Well, I've got a... It's a Bonaval is a good thing going, right? Yeah, it's good. <laughs> exactly. Something. Yeah. Um, this Brut wine actually is very, very pleasant. I know we talked earlier, and I had tasted these a while back, um, and remembering that it seemed to be sweeter, but this one's a little more chilled. This seems mm-hmm. very balanced. Now, a Brut would go well with orange juice, I think, because you have a little sugar there. Mm-hmm. To me, Brut Nature... By itself. I mean, nothing to add unless you want to add perhaps something esoteric like a little touch of pomegranate just to make something fun and festive, but nothing really... Agreed. Agreed. Now, Lule restaurant mm. in Seattle loves our Brut Nature for their French 75s. Oh, I would yeah. get. I could see that, too, because you've for got that, some gin in there. kind of reason there. that you're talking yeah, yeah. about. So. Uh, and you want that acidity and that structure, too, for, for right. some of those drinks because you're, when you add some sweetness. And when you talk about mimosas... Orange juice has got plenty of acid already, sure so does. we're not looking for it. Exactly. Um, Bonaval, uh, the, the brand is from, or the Bonaval is the brand. Uh, you have actually uh, three uh, expressions, right? We do. And, and you know, we kind of went a little backwards when we brought them in. We started with only Brut Nature for about the first three years. So now we're at uh, a new entry on both the Brut and a Brut Rosé. Our well, Rosé is also classified as a Brut Dryness. All right. Well, tell you what, let's do that next week. Why don't you come back next week? We'll chat Love about uh, more Bonaval. We'll try the Rosé, and I understand 
understand we've got a wine from very, very... Uh, Historic region in France, if that could be possible. Obscure and historic. Uh, what a treat. Uh, Keith Peterson with Tacopa Brands, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Hey, folks, hope you uh, dug today's show. Um, it's hippie food and uh, hippie bubbles. <laughs> but I'll be back next week. Uh, I've got uh, Paula Scheuer from, uh, from New York, and, of course, we're going to have more wine with Keith Peterson. Hey, remember, life's always better with a designated driver. Cheers. Cheers.